I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on which we are going to answer your questions about death on the Nile. Before we do that, though, I have a question. I have a question. I have a question for you, Tim. I'm ready. Is it okay if I ask a question? Yeah. Can I, it's the Q&A. Can I, ask a, can I ask a question about, I don't know, like your personal life? Sure. Okay, let me see. Let me just think of a question here that's about your personal life. Just What are your random. intentions towards Galen? <laughs> do, you have any, do you have anything that you'd like to share with us? Any news about your personal life that you'd be willing to share with the world at large that listens to this podcast? Is this a serious relationship? This is a serious relationship. Galen How serious? And I, it's so serious that Galen and I got engaged on Thursday. Yay! This is so <laughs> exciting. <laughs> this is brand new information. It's, it's podcast well, okay, official. I told you guys off the air. I told yeah. you guys off the air. Yeah. Um, but it's brand new information to our leader, our listeners, maybe our leader, our listeners, perhaps. <laughs> kind of yeah. like Although I think leaders. I think if some of them, uh, if you're Patreon people, it did get mentioned. That's true. I, I heard at the top. You were talking with Brandon over on Patreon about an engagement scene in Anna Karenina. That's right. And that led, as as such things do, to conversations about other engagements. So it did get mentioned there. So if you're a Patreon supporter then what better reason to be a dipping. Patreon supporter than getting to hear news about Tim's private life before anyone else. Right. Um, you've set a precedent now, Tim. I hope you realize that. I know. Tim, congratulations. We're so Thank happy you. for We're you. We're so happy Thank for you. you. I can't wait to meet her. I already adore her. We haven't met yet, but Kaylin, I can't wait for you to marry Tim. This yeah, if you're so listening, exciting. congratulations. We, we Do adore you realize you what you've already. gotten yourself into? You know, I mean, congratulations. One of the things, so I'm seeing Galen this afternoon. And I have a list of things that we like have to accomplish. Like this is probably you, you both having been married, going through like the whole wedding ceremony and everything. You're like, yeah, Tim, it's like all business from here on out. But this is a little bit, no, it's not unexpected, but the force and gravity of like our decisions is now like coming to the forefront. Like I've seriously got five questions I need to ask her so that we can kind of move forward on this and that and everything else. So, well, Tim, I've got great news for you. What's that? This is a Q and A episode. So, why uh, don't you run those five questions by Heidi and I? Okay, here we and go. We'll, we'll see what we can solve for you. Okay, <laughs> you might go to great. that meeting with Dalen without any questions anymore. I would love that, and she probably would too. My first question. <laughs> okay, so just tell her to listen to the show. Galen <laughs> um, already owns owns a home in. Chattanooga, her family is very familiar with like buying property, owning rental property, okay. et cetera. Okay. This is my first time. So I am going to close on an apartment, the apartment that we'll eventually live in. And I mm-hmm. close on it in about one month. And so we're right in the process of doing like loan stuff and inspection stuff and da 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 da. So Galen right. went to the inspection on Monday morning. So my first question is, did you see the list of inspection findings? What sort of things are we going to petition for in that list of findings? Are we going to go back to the sellers and say, hey, you need to buy us a new microwave? Okay. Fun, okay. fun stuff like that. Hi, fun Heidi, stuff Heidi, for our listeners. Our listeners are like, this is really great. I, let's let, so let's let Heidi answer that one. What are you, Heidi, what are we going to respond here? Like, How should Galen and Tim respond 
to the question of the, the inspection. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably need more information in order to respond to this because here's why Galen, this is for you because I am a woman who cares about my stuff. Mm. So I'm not going to speak for another woman about her stuff and what she loves and cares about. Because <sighs> ruining the bit, Heidi. I know. Galen, ruining the bit. Galen I, right now, I'm going to tell you what Galen's thinking. She's like, I already liked Heidi. Yeah. So <laughs> I already liked not her. Not even for a bit am I going to step on another woman in her bridal home. So. <laughs> well, Sorry, I'd say, David. yeah, you get, the, you get them to leave the microwave. Leave it or replace it? Yeah, that's the question, yeah. David. Leave it or replace it? Oh no! Well, you ask them to replace it. Yeah, you want a clean microwave? No, it's like it. The, never mind. We're not going to talk about this. It's a fan <laughs> yeah, problem, right. not a clean, not a cleanliness problem. Um, anything else that you need some help solving? Like maybe something Heidi will actually participate in? I know, right? Maybe. Where so. are we going to meet Father Colin and his wife Katie on Friday night? Oh, Goldberry Books, Concord, North Carolina. Oh, that'd be fun. That'd be really fun. Uh, another question: Where do you want to get married? Goldberry Books, Concord, North Carolina. Really? This is coming so easily. That actually would be really fun. That would be really Anything fun. Anything else? Nah, that's it for that's it for now. All right. Well, we we have hush, um, hush. <laughs> so I'm aware I can do math too. We're probably getting maybe it's too private. We are going to answer listener questions. I mean, I thought we were going to answer some questions. Maybe this is just going to be a conversation where Heidi's like, I don't know. I don't really want to answer questions. Tim, what do you think? But well, I guess we'll find out <laughs> once we get to the questions that have been sent to us from the listeners. First, though, of David's course, getting came takers. we need to talk about Signum Academy because they're supporting the podcast this month. Do you love books, languages, or creative writing? Yes. Like, for example, the way Heidi, Tim, and I do. Signum Academy's clubs program offers low-stress live online sessions where you or your kids can discuss their favorite books, participate in creative writing workshops, and learn languages like Spanish, German, French, Japanese, Latin, Greek, Old English, and even Old Norse. You can attend these club sessions from anywhere, and you'll get to connect with students from around the world under the guidance of passionate teachers who love the stuff as much as you do. So it's perfect either as, say, an extracurricular activity or as a supplement to a homeschool curriculum. And the clubs are available to students ages 8 to 18. You can check them out at signumuniversity.org slash academy or send an email to academy at signum you, the letter U, dot org. So again, thanks to Signum for sponsoring Close Read this month. And uh, again, that is signumuniversity.org slash academy. Lots of great options there. As I've been saying the last couple of weeks, Old Norse, that sounds like a, uh, sounds like a great course to take. Also sounds like the name of a bar. Should be like a pub somewhere. Like, for example, the pub where Tim's going to get married. Yeah. Uh, you know, should Goldberry Books, Concord, North Carolina not work out? Right, 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 right. Of course. We we have some questions, as usual. We've got several over on the Facebook page, but I want to start with a couple that were sent to me via email. And let's see here. This is This is a really important one. Heidi, I want to know what you think of this. This comes from Elizabeth Troutman over over email. Do you think, Heidi, the reason the Hollywood executives did not cast Tim McIntosh as Hercule Poirot is that he looks like Prince Harry, according to his local barista, and Poirot is French? If not, is there really any other logical explanation? I mean, no, I can't yeah. think of a single other yeah, explanation. Because Kenneth Branagh 
is, I mean, he's really just Tim McIntosh mm. light, L-I-T-E. You know what I mean? Yeah. Played Hamlet before. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Couple yep. of he's other just Tim. things. Yeah. 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 I and reached he doesn't out even look like Prince Harry. He doesn't even look like Prince Harry. I reached out to Ken about some of his to Ken. <laughs> professional choices. They just seemed mm. a little bit, um, I don't want to say it, but just a little say bit. It. Own it. He's a copycat. Yeah, you mean because he's copying you, or he's copying? Yeah, he's just kind of like I'm out there at the vanguard, leading the charge, and he's kind of Ken's kind of in the wake. Well, the first person, the person who you know carves the way, is rarely the one who gets recognized. Exactly, the understudy. Exactly, Exactly. the understudy. You know, I'm sure Lawrence Olivier had somebody who he was studying under that was actually much more important and famous, and and like not famous but better, better. I'm assuming. Right. The way of the world and so forth. Right. Well, I felt like that was the most important question that we were going to get. And thus we had to start with That's it. That's a great question. It also could be because at the <clears throat> interview, Tim's accent came out as Russian. That would not be a first. <laughs> that would not be a first. So, wait, hey, Rebecca- way to touch on contemporary topics Russia's pending invasion of the Ukraine. Oh, I'm so bored right now. <laughs> or, or uh, as Putin might put it, my crane. My crane. Nice. I stole that from. Can us. we get? Can we get like yeah. a, a really bad sound effect right here, Tim? Yeah. Would you say? Would you say, Tim? We need a we need a sound effect here of like your, what it sounds like for. Oh, like you mean like the hi hat? Like, yeah, like yeah. yeah, yeah. You gotta give yourself a hi hat. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We have a question here from Rebecca, also via email. She says it was mentioned a couple of times during the discussions that it would be difficult to write a mystery. So let's say you were to write an Agatha Christie type mystery with a group of people stuck in a home or a train or a boat, but all the characters had to be authors dead or living. Which authors would you choose to be in your mystery? So this is a fun one. And I'm thinking we should make this somehow a group activity. Mm. So instead of each of us deciding our own cast of characters to be in the mystery, we should have to like, we'll, we'll go around and choose different people to to put on on this together so we gotta we gotta cooperate somehow as we build this cast of characters why don't we say then there's six should we say six or nine there's three of us we each get to choose a couple six six people that are involved in this you know in this um mystery and they all have to be authors and for the sake of conversation should we choose should we say that Poirot is just the detective. So he, yes. so we're not trying to, yeah. okay. So we, Poirot is our detective. Let's choose a place where, okay. where do we want this? Like she said, home or a boat or something. Goldberry books, Concord, North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. All right. So, the, so a murder has been committed or is the murder already been committed? Yeah. We're all the, we are picking the suspects. Yeah. Okay. So a murder, David a body gets murdered. has been, <laughs> what? Ooh, that would David be, that would actually murdered. be good. They're like, because everybody be has yeah, got a motive. David gets murdered. And the first words that come out of Tim's mouth are, that would be great. No, because so everybody good. has a motive. Everybody has a motive. You have everybody a time wants machine and you brought Goldberry them all Luther. there. Yeah, that's right. Uh, okay. I'll, we'll go with this. We'll go with the conceit. Okay. okay, so I am found dead on the floor of my bookstore. And there are six authors that happen to be there because we were doing our um, fortnightly author writers group 
which the one that I'm the other one that I'm a part of where I die. Um, so <laughs> got very confusing. I'm trying to figure out exactly how I play into this you whole scenario and being outside of the story a resurrection machine. And we bring the authors <laughs> from the past into today. Okay. So today I, I die at the bookstore and there yeah. are six authors there. Okay. Tim, you're first. Who are you choosing? Um, can we settle at the end or at the beginning on what the murder weapon was? Ooh. Um, though let's not say that the, we don't know what the weapon was. We have to, it, it, we have to have a means of, because if you decide you the weapon, then the, that's like, can help give away too much early in the story. Okay. Is it, do I get suffocated, strangled, stabbed, stabbed eaten by a boar? Sickle, the perfect murder. What? No prince. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Okay. It was that I get buried under books, that I get smashed on the head with a Shakespeare's complete works. Yeah. Bludgeoned with a book is for sure. Okay, I, Blud- it's I, either I'm, bludgeoned with a book or stabbed with a letter opener. It seemed like the only two real possibilities here. Well, uh, that's less likely to be an accident or be able to look like an accident. Stabbed with a letter opener. I see, I see. So let's do bludgeoned so with his own typewriter. We're going to go around even twice. Better. Yeah, yeah. So bludgeoned. No, we'll just go around. You, you choose one and then okay. we'll go through. So I'm dead bludgeoned yeah. by a large your book. own typewriter or my own typewriter this is going to be my first opportunity to nominate this author for any sort of award <laughs> on this show and will probably be Ayn the Rand. last Ayn Rand you're <laughs> okay. welcome very much did you see the Aaron Rodgers Ayn Rand thing that happened no he was yeah. on the Monday Night Football with Peyton Manning and Eli Manning and yeah. he uh, he had books behind him and they were like talk because he does this thing where he does a book club and they were like uh what do you got behind you he's like oh look i got some ayn rand back here atlas shrugged uh-uh. and then he asked everyone like of course the internet goes crazy because they're like either he should not be reading ayn rand or look at that aaron Rodgers reads ayn rand but then afterwards he's like i've never read that book i just thought it'd be funny if i put it on the shelf back there wow he's like he's like i don't like ayn rand at all i just it was a big book and i thought it'd be funny to put on the shelf and so he's basically just trolling everybody <laughs> over ayn rand and the internet That's went crazy because ayn rand is crazy hilarious. okay so ayn rand is there who would you who would you put there heidi um i'm gonna do my two together because they're a married couple and oh. this is gonna add some spice to the murder sylvia plath Ted Hughes. Oh, that's great. Okay. So we've got Ayn Rand, Sylvia Plath, and Ted Hughes. Yep. P.G. Woodhouse. Wait, the dead person gets to nominate his own murderer? His own potential murderer? In this case, I'm a third party. Yeah. He's outside the story right now. This is like Dante the Poet, Dante the Pilgrim. I see. Right now we have David the Poet. Okay. Yeah. Uh, And I think I'm going to, I want... Given the people you just nominated, we're going to need some levity. Okay, for sure. PG Woodhouse We've got is a Hughes, Plath, and Rand, so I'm nominating PG Woodhouse to be there to just bring mm-hmm. some nonsense to the mm-hmm. procedure. We, you know, what, let's go around three times. Let's have nine people there, like in um, Murder on the Orient Express. I've got to nominate just for the macabre factor, Flannery O'Connor. Okay, it's a murder that happens in the South. David has so many tattoos. <laughs> I think I think Flannery O'Connor is the obvious choice. <laughs> okay, so we've got Sylvia Plath, Ayn Rand, Flannery O'Connor, Ted Hughes, and P.G. Woodhouse. Heidi, you're up. 
Um, well, you did two already, so I'll go and then we'll go back. Okay, around. yeah, yeah. Snake draft. <clears throat> Larry McMurtry. Mm. Okay, so now Tim, go back to you, and then we'll go back through just for the fun of it. Fyodor Dostoevsky. Okay, so we've got that's a good choice. We got Ayn Rand, Solid. Dostoevsky, and who? Wait, who's? Oh, and Larry O'Connor, Ted Hughes, and Sylvia Plath, who will be going back and forth between being affectionate to one another and hating one another. And then we've got Larry McMurtry and PG Woodhouse. All right. I get one more. Mm-hmm. Lord Byron. Lord. Ooh. Okay. That's a great <clears throat> one. Okay. So then my last one, we're not going to, all of these people are perfectly capable of retelling the story mm-hmm. of being very creative, sinister in their own right. All of them you could see making sense as the potential murderer. Mm-hmm. Um, Roald Dahl. Oh, he seems so innocent. Good choice. That's a good one. He seems I actually so like innocent. that one a lot. So but those are, those are through a war. Those are, well, most of the people have been somewhere have been yeah. through some pretty bleak stuff or are about Although, to go through some pretty, pretty bleak can stuff. Can I switch my answer to Mary Shelley? Cause we need another woman. And she's just as romantic. Sure. Capital I was going to, I was mm. going to choose Fitzgerald's wife, but then I didn't know mm. she would technically qualify. Zelda. Like, yeah. yeah. No, that would have been, probably she been, been great, been but there, she and but... Sylvia Plath were like birds of a feather. So I'm going to yeah, throw exactly. in That's, yeah. Mary Shelley. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Good choice. So our, so our nine suspects are Ted Hughes, Sylvia Plath, and Mary Shelley, Dostoevsky, Ayn Rand, and Flannery O'Connor, Roald Dahl, Larry McMurtry, and P.G. Woodhouse. Good choices. This so one of you out there needs mystery. to go out there and re, re, you know, write this. this murder mystery for us. Great question, Rebecca. That's a great question. She, she said after she said, if this is a dumb question, ignore it. I, but she said, I just question. always enjoy hearing side tangents. So, okay. Here's one from Suzanne that gets kind of into the, well, actually just, just do this one from Rory and then we'll come back to Suzanne later. Rory Van Landingham asks, you all discussed the fact that Poirot is a moral character. And yet he knew what Jackie planned to do with the gun in the end, and he let her. So this seemed out of character. Jackie and Simon were able to take the easy way out. How does this square with his morality as a character? How do you, what do you think of this? Uh, yeah, um, I think that when we talk about Poirot's, when I talk about Poirot's very strong moral center, he is a it, it's quite peculiar and curious, right? He, he is uh, coming, first of all, from a different time. Uh, and that impacts, I think, a lot of his own kind of bourgeois mid-century values. Um, but in this case, I think he is showing mercy to the least guilty party in the murder, in his mind. Like his humanism is very curious and it it's, consistent throughout the Agatha Christie canon. He makes very curious decisions like that uh, for very strong moral reasons, but they are a moral code of his own internal life. And so in order to really understand Poirot's moral code, which is very strong, it is, I think, important to read a lot, like a wide sample of her books. Um, But he's getting at this kind of justice that's very tempered with mercy. Uh, Mm. It's not a justice that just follows the law code, and it doesn't just follow, meaning a national law code, like the English law code. And it's not necessarily a moral code that just follows the traditional Judeo-Christian 
kind of moral code that we would just say the guilty person pays for his crimes, right? Um, he has like a very kind of uh, twisty, not twisted, I don't, but twisty kind of curious, peculiar humanism and sets of moral values that he evaluates these kind of complex uh, decisions regarding justice. And in this case, I think what he's doing is showing mercy to Jackie and saying, if that means that Simon doesn't have to go through the court of the court of law system, he's going to be hanged anyway. And so let me offer this last mercy to this, to this brokenhearted child that I have come to care about and love. And, mm-hmm. and I think he's willing to let Simon off the hook for the sake of Jackie and in his moral code that fits. Mm-hmm. Tim, what do you think then that says about what the book thinks about Jackie and her role. Like, I, I don't want to say Christy because I don't want to necessarily, but like, I don't necessarily put words in her mouth or trying to make it some kind of authorial intent conversation. But given that our main character, our, our sort of arbiter of justice, our sense of moral right and wrong does what Heidi's describing, what do you think the book is then saying about its approach to, to Jackie? You mean because she was only like she didn't actually? Well, like it seems. Do, do you do you think the I book think is, it is saying that she's less guilty than Simon? How how come Heidi? Well, I mean, the question was to you, but I think that's what he's getting at. Like, is you know. I mean, well, the I book think, seems to have yeah. a degree of sympathy for her that it doesn't. Yes, because oh, Poirot right. has a degree of sympathy. Right. So then, what does that mean about? The way the book the thinks about justice and yeah, yeah, it's a hard. I'm struggling with the question because I think that Poirot has sympathy with her because she could have kind of turned back at the beginning, and he kind of saw the path that she was on and urged her to turn back. But at the end, does that sympathy should that sympathy mute? his attempts at justice. Um, I don't think that Poirot thinks that. I think that he can think like, man, I have a whole lot of sympathy with this woman who got into a situation with this horrible man, like a top-class narcissist, or like a second-class narcissist. Um, But she still deserves kind of the penalty that she gets. But that's a, that seems to make a separate question from the question of um, why did Poirot allow her to kind of execute her lover and then herself? And I don't have anything better to add than what Heidi gave. Yeah, I thought that was a great answer. In the end, do you, it, it, like, do you, are you satisfied by that? Is justice served either of you? Yes. Yeah, I am too. I mean, what's the real, the only real difference is whether or not it went through the administration of the court system, right? Isn't it the only real difference? Yes. Because we have all the facts. It's not as if we were like still adjudicating whether or not she was involved and whether or not Simon was involved. We still, we know that. So the only difference is justice was immediate, non-administrated by like a third party, namely the English court system. It does. It is interesting that the, Christy kind of is like demanding of us that we accept Poirot's wisdom as judge and jury. 
Yeah, that's true. There's no other alternative. It's just, I mean, we're overthinking this a little bit because that's what the point of a detective novel, but but she continuously holds him up in that way. Right. I mean, I'll say I... And again, I read these uh, these books over and over again at such a formative age that I, I think that they have had actually a real impact on my moral life. Um, mm. But I I think within what I say, take the law into your own hands and make decisions, judge and jury in real life. No, but literature is not real life. Literature is a different thing. And in this case, what it's it's not like, would I let Jackie execute Simon and then kill herself in real life if I was Poirot. No. Mm-hmm. However, in the story, I think it is satisfying. And I think she is positing throughout her canon that that the motive and the, the emotional state of the murderer makes an impact on what justice is at the end of the story. Mm. And and so in this case, the condemnation of Simon is much stronger and the mercy on Jackie becomes part of the mitigation of, of external justice upon this young woman. And mm. I don't think we're adding too much to it. I think that's exactly what Christie is exploring in multiple ways across her, old can, her own canon, using Poirot as judge and jury and moral executioner and detective. Like he does, mm. I think, embody her own own sense of justice. And, mm. um, and, and for that reason, I think we wrestle through it in kind of a simplistic story with lots of tropes and, and, you know, all those kinds of things. That's what adds the moral weight to the story is the fact that Jackie kills Simon at the end. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be enduring if that didn't happen. It would just be a regular old detective story. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's another question on here from, from Anne. Um, about Poirot's sort of moral sense. Because she asks, did anyone else feel weird about Poirot's looking the other way regarding the theft of the pearl necklace? And Anne continues, I mean, I get that it was sort of in keeping with his character to do this, but it felt odd that this bored rich guy, Tim, not Tim McIntosh, who knows better, got treated like some underprivileged kid who made a mistake and needs a second chance. Um, so what are, what are your thoughts, Anne asks, on how Christie wrapped up that strand of the story? So in... It, you know, he his looking the other way, I suppose. How does that fit in with the moral sort of structures that that Christie's been giving us with with Poirot throughout the canon and particularly in this book? Heidi, I'll flip that over to you first again, because it seems like you've thought about this a lot. And then Tim's also eating. He's chewing right now, it looked like, or maybe he's getting some food out of his teeth. So it just seemed like the best time to let you go again. <laughs> yes, this is one of those cases I think his... Uh, his kind of leniency on Tim is one of those cases that I think that, that, um, yeah, not Macintosh, um, that the, that Poirot's, uh, values are influenced by the values of his society. And so then is the author, right? Because this is at a time in British culture in which the aristocracy, uh, the well-born, the well-bred, the well-educated were granted a measure of privilege, uh, and, and favored, by the general public, right? And so we would not, the readers would not have, and neither would Perot or anybody in the story would not have a sense of, uh, uh, of, of privilege, of Tim's privilege being a bad thing. Uh, in fact, it would be, it would make it easier on him, right? Because he's rich and he's well-bred and he's well-educated. And so he gets 
more mercy than the lower classes uh, and more room to fail than the lower classes. So we are talking about a very different kind of value system. uh, And I think that's embodied in the story and we can agree or disagree with that. Um, However, one of of Poirot's things is that mercy triumphs over justice. And so when he sees true repentance and a true possibility for a character to change or reform, he will always favor that instead of going the other way, always. And you'll see that in Christie's canon across the board. No, no matter, regardless of wealth or privilege in society uh, or social status, um, he will give favor to mercy and the potential for reform. Hmm. And he, that will be his system of justice and morality. You know, the question about um, privilege in British society came up at the end of Rebecca mm-hmm. also, didn't it? Like Maxim yes. de Winter gets, I mean, he gets treated um, despite, you know, all the accusations flying around. He gets a lot of benefit of the doubt because of his position in society. Right. Right. Well, and the assumption would be because they have greater tools, right? We have this idea of like, it's just different. The way we think about it is very different right now in this cultural moment. Like it would have been Tim Allerton has, he's well-educated, he's well-bred, he's a really good mother. So he's more likely to live a moral life if given a second chance. So they're not going to deprivilegize in a sense his privilege. Mm. And we can disagree or agree with that or have a problem with it, but that is written within these mid-century books. It's written in Woodhouse, it's written in Christie, it's written in a lot of these kind of stories of the mid-century that the upper classes have the upper hand because they have been trained towards morality and formed towards it. Mm. For the sake of, this is a Q&A, so for the sake of conversation, I think we could talk about this forever, and but those are the questions I want to get to. So, I'll, although it's abrupt, I'm gonna move on. Um, there's a lot of like Agatha Christie questions here that are kind of general that we know I need Heidi to opine on for a while. But there's a question here: Why does this is from Suzanne? Why does Cornelia end up with the Doctor and not Ferguson? There's a couple of responses talking about Fergus Ferguson being a jerk. So my question is. Do you think that that the book earns Cornelia ending up with the doctor and not Ferguson? I was thinking about that a lot. Tim, as like as a storyteller, as a playwright, I couldn't figure out whether I felt like Christie had made it so that when that happens, it feels inevitable. Or there's like three different ways something can happen in my mind. It's a, you're like, okay, that was inevitable. That was a surprise, but in the right way. And the book is like, oh yeah, I'm surprised, but the book has made this surprise work or there's the surprise and you the book hasn't prepared you to accept it as a surprise that works i felt like it was the latter i felt like that was kind of um a little bit of sugar to help the medicine go down or something like that like don't (laughs) worry you guys it's not all doom and gloom we're not gonna you know it's not just gonna be a suicide and a murder to end the book there's also gonna be a little bit of happily ever after I, that's what it felt like to me because I just felt like I, there wasn't much character development between those two that made me think, oh, of course, there it is. Heidi, do you? Yeah, how would you respond to that, Heidi? I don't know. I mean, like I said, I read I read this book so young and so many times that it just like, I don't even know how to 
think about it a different way. I think what, what Christy is doing here is I don't think Ferguson is supposed to be unlikable. I think he's supposed to be like a young firebrand with all these ideals and just kind of going yeah. about it the wrong way. And that's kind and of how I you, read him. Yeah. And then you expect him to be, but he's likable. He's just young because she has this whole thing. And Poirot has this whole thing about youth, right? And how, how you do things when you're young that you can't take back and how unjust that is because the youth are so youthful and inexperienced. Um, and so that in many ways is, is more profoundly unjust within the stories. That's such a source of injustice in the stories that people have to pay their whole life for a mistake they make in their youth when they don't know any better. And um, like Poirot doesn't like that. So he keeps giving second chances to the young, um, even when they're stupid. Um, and so that is, I think with Ferguson, we're supposed to see him as, like I said, this like young firebrand who's just kind of a like stupid. And then here comes this girl that could reform him and she's not pretty. And isn't this a sweet love story? No, wait, she's, she's going to go be with somebody else and who's more reliable. Right. And so that's this lesson to this young firebrand to become more reliable because he lost this girl. Right. And so then he has all he needs to kind of move on into the future and become a good man. And she ends up with somebody that she can count on when she's always been the helper her whole life. But if she was married to Ferguson, she'd just have to help him and carry him forever because he's such a hothead. But now she gets (laughs) to be with someone who will help her. So I think it is supposed to be a happy ending, but I don't think we're supposed to think about it too much. We're just supposed to be like, oh, that was kind of expected. I thought she was going to be with the young Lord who's rich. No, she wants somebody reliable. She's a woman of character. The end, period. These people marry so many people they just met. Yeah. Like a- Yeah. Right. Well, it's all right. I guess we're already suspending our disbelief from, from that perspective. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you have to. This is so genre long was, fiction. How long was the um, courtship between Simon and Lynette? Do we know? Three months. Oh, yeah, months. months. One, one, yeah. Well, the, yeah. She took him. The, Simon and Lynette. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I thought you were saying Jackie and Simon. Hey, so Amy has another question. She says, do the fam- familial love stories, Mrs. Allerton for her son, Rosalie for her mother, and the various romantic love stories, Rosalie, Tim, Cornelia, Bessner, Ferguson, Cornelia, work as foils for the main love triangle? If not, what is their purpose? Are we as readers meant to approve of the love stories Poirot approves of and disapprove of the ones he finds fault with? It's interesting to discuss the idea of like, are we meant to just accept Poirot's judgments, the, his view of the world, his, mm. his uh, assessment of people as like, Godlike. I mean, not in the, just in the sense that we, for the sake of the story, we are supposed to as, assume that he is omniscient. And or are we so are we are we allowed to look at him and say, you know what? Maybe maybe you're looking at this the wrong way. Like maybe your own either prejudices or your own rose-colored glasses, so to speak, are getting in the way of your of your judgment. How, how do you look at all of this, Tim? I think we're supposed to take Perot with a. Um we're supposed to agree with his moral assessments of the situation. I mean, everything about him is, and this is part of the reason he's such an enduring character. These books are set up with Poirot kind of looming in the background, knowing the solution before we know the solution. And what's more, he also has the kind of moral stance that we're meant to 
we're meant to admire. And I, I do admire it. You know, I totally recognize the kind of, like Heidi said earlier, mid-century values that he strives to embody. You know, I kind of, rec- I recognize that there's a difference between his day and my day. That's just the nature of reading. I mean, if you That's read right. anything older than 50 years, you have to step into a different moral universe and kind of adjudicate according to the rules of the day. And you also have to make the assessment of, okay, given my day and what I know now, should I pronounce some sort of judgment on, in this case, the things that Poirot believes? So for me, I think like the habit, the the good habit of reading is you give yourself over to that world, in this case, the world that Christie created for us, the moral universe that Poirot is sleuth, judge, and jury over, and you kind of welcome it and accept it. And then I think like the second tier of reading is, okay, what sort of things do I disagree with Poirot about? But for me, the, on the first read, I think you're giving yourself over and there's this kind of um, relationship with of trust with the author that you're going to accept. Mm. But it's the second tier in which you might do a little bit of, you might say, huh, is it really fair? Do we really think that people of privilege deserve to have, um, that the bar should hold them a little bit less responsible because they have a more promising future in front of them? Do we really think that's fair? That, that'd be a second tier hermeneutic or assessment, I think. Mm. I think that's really. I think that's very, very well said. I I heartily agree with that. But yes, I think we are meant to uh, trust Poirot and his judgments and take them seriously. He's not unreliable. Yeah, in right, the story, right. he represents Christie's way of thinking about the world. It is authorial intent that we accept Poirot as the authority on people, just as we accept him as the authority on the clues and the resolution of the that crime. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my college professors posted a Twitter thread recently about the idea of unreliable narrators. And he was essentially talking about how we, we often think that when you are talking about an unreliable narrator, what you're talking about is, can I trust that what this character is saying is true? But that the term unreliable narrator comes from Wayne C. Booth in his book. I, oh, I think it's called The Art of fiction or something like that. And that the actual word means that when he talks about an unreliable narrator, what he's saying is like, it's whether the narrator, whether the character, whether the narrator of the book actually represents what the author thinks themselves. So for example, you know, mm-hmm. he uses Huckleberry Finn as an example where the narrator of Huckleberry Finn believes things that people in the world believed, but we are, we accept, we know that it's not what Mark Twain believed. Mm-hmm. So that it's not, can I trust whether this character is telling the truth? That's something we could ask ourselves about characters, sure. But it's not the same thing as an unreliable narrator, which is a more technical term about the connection between the narrator's point of view and whether whether the author is trying to get across his or her own point of view through that narrator. So you brought that up. So I thought that was an interesting hmm. distinction that I hadn't thought about in a while. Um, good book though, that Wayne C. Booth book. Um, Tim, were you going to say something? Well, I was just going to comment, like, it's really the most common tactic is for the author to identify 
herself really closely with the protagonist. It's hard unless you have a kind of antagonist as your protagonist. It's really hard to design a book in which the protagonist is not in some way speaking for the author. Of course, there are all sorts of exceptions, but I think it's kind of like a fairly safe rule of thumb to say, okay, my protagonist in this book is going to be speaking in some way for the author. I mean, Anna Karenina is an exception, but Anna Karenina in a lot of ways is not the main character of the book. She's of course a protagonist, but the real kind of Tolstoy's voice comes through Levin. Yeah, the narrator is different than the protagonist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the narrator is different than Anna. And the, the narrator voice is different is, than Levin. But the character yeah. that we are most meant to understand as the voice of Tolstoy within the narrative itself is Levin. Okay, again, we could talk about this forever. Yeah. Go listen to the Anna Karenina shows if you want to. Okay, hey, Heidi, here's a question from Aaron. She says, she's wondering about mystery tropes and some good examples of tropes that Christie might have invented herself. Is there anything that you would point to? Uh, Christie did invent or and or perfect some herself, for sure. For example, having the narrator be the murderer and kind of tricking us the whole time, that was new to Christie, as far as I know. Isn't that right, David? I, yeah, I think so. I think that's right. Um, I did a little bit of research on this, but I'm not willing to bet the farm on it. But it was it was new. She also elevated the murder mystery to be in um, that, that it's very British. Like she she was the one who established the tradition of the murder mystery in like the high plot right within the um, aristocracy. Um, she was known for that. Uh, the American mysteries that were happening around the same time were mostly like like crime fiction um, in the sense of like Tommy guns and that kind of thing, like taking place within crime families. And in England, it was a lot of like high class, like puzzles. Um, and she also... Oh, there was one other one that I can't remember right now. I should have done my research before. It'll come to me probably by the end of the episode. But there's one other one that she was really well known for. Do you guys know? Do either of you know, David? No, you I don't know? think so. Okay. Not off the top right. of my head. Yeah. Well, there's a question here from Beverly it. that's related. And she says, mm -hmm. in some ways, the long list of coincidences that happen in the story can feel a little contrived. And she says, I know detective novels by definition are highly formulaic and full of tropes, but this one seems especially so. Can you recommend other stories, Christy or others that feel a little bit more organic if that's even possible? I'm going to leave that one to you, David. Yeah. What you got, David? Okay. Um, I, <laughs> the question is interesting because I don't think that, you should put highly formulaic and full of tropes in the same category. Um, and that's not a criticism of the question. It's just interesting. I just had been thinking about that. Um, formula and trope, I think are different things. So you look at a book like Raymond Chandler's The Big Sleep. That book is full of tropes. It's an LA crime novel. Um, Very American, many, like an American many tropes, classic. 
it, true, lots of American stuff, but also it has some of the same tropes as in this book. You've got like the rich young girl who gets herself into trouble. There's like there's a lot of things that you'd see even in a Christie book, but then it's an Americanized version. So there's going to be all those American tropes. But it is not formulaic really at all, except it has the formula of there's a detective trying to solve the mystery. In fact, that book is famous for no one ever knowing what's actually happening in the plot. It's it's like you can't, you if you've seen the movie or the book. I've read that book multiple times. No idea what happens. No idea how it happens. It's completely not the point. Um, in a lot of books that are more organic, to use the phrase that Beverly uses there, I think what you're looking for is mood. You're looking for tone. Because then what's happening is the organism that is the mystery is coming to life out of the like squishy, muddy substance of the mood that the book is creating. The crime itself happens and then everything else unravels because the author is presenting a certain kind of tone or a mood. Um, but I do think you can look at like, um, well, I just finished, <laughs> I just finished Edmund Crispin's, Crispin's book, um, the moving toy shop. And that book, the plot is kind of beside the point, but it's not formulaic at all. You might be able to predict some of it. Um, but it tend, they tend to be like, it's a absolutely hilarious literary mystery. And by literary, I mean full of allusions to literature. Um, and so when it leans into the humor or it leads into a mood or a tone, it's going to tend to be more committed to that tone or that mood or that humor than it is going to be to a puzzle. And so then the formula will feel less front and center and it will thus be, be feeling a little bit more organic. That would be my response to that. But all mystery stories to some extent have to have a raveling and an unraveling and there are that's going to be a step-by-step process and so even if it's not following the same formula it's going to have the same feeling of a formula because even if the book is creating its own new formula does that make sense right yeah okay so i did go ahead and check my document that i have on this um and wait you have a document I have some documents. Um, I use like a big Google Docs person. I do use a lot of Google Docs. Um, And it is, the other thing she's really known for is the multiple suspects concealing secrets, which we see in Death on the Nile. Uh, And then the secrets are, as Tim said, like red herrings to solving the murder, right? So um, suspicious circumstances that have nothing to do with the murder that then have to be uncovered as you go in order to get to the real murder, like peeling back layers of an onion. Uh, That was new to Christy. And then the big one, and this was the one I was trying to remember, uh, is the big reveal by the detective by getting everybody in a room. That became like a classic murder trope. And it was Agatha Christie who did that first. Yeah. One yeah, like in the Crispin trope. book, oh, go ahead. that doesn't happen at all. No, the <laughs> American detective stories don't do that. Really. Uh, well, the Crispin uh, book is is uh, Oxford. It's it takes place in Oxford. It's English, but it's it doesn't happen like that at all. There's no. What'll happen is the detective kind of was like afterwards. He kind of went and talked to his friend. And he's like, "Yeah, this is how I figured it out." But there's no like gathering of all the people like and the big you know, uncovering it. Yeah. Um, the 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 one she didn't like that she tried to undermine throughout her detective stories. Uh, she liked the private detective, obviously, but she did not like a prejudice against the police. She was actually a very traditional person, and she didn't like the idea that the police were stupid and couldn't solve things on their own. And so that was, that was a trope at the time and continues today. Um, But she didn't, she didn't like that one. She tried to undermine that. 
Mm. Hey, we have a question here from Jill. And she says, what do you make of the last line of the book? So I'm going to read the last little bit here so we can discuss that quickly because we didn't get to that last time. So it says, later the bodies of Louise Bourget and Mrs. Audubon were carried off the Karnak. Lastly, the body of Lynette Doyle was brought ashore and all over the world, wires began to hum, telling the public that Lynette Doyle, who had been Lynette Ridgway, the famous, the beautiful, the wealthy Lynette Doyle was dead. Sir George Wode read about it in his London club and Sterndale Rockford in New York, and Joanna Southwood, great names, by the way, in Switzerland, and it was discussed in the bar of the Three Crowns in Malton under Wode. Burnaby's lean friend said, well, it didn't seem fair, her having everything, and Mr. Burnaby said, said acutely, well, it doesn't, seem, it doesn't seem to have done her much good, poor lass. But after a while, they stopped talking about her and discussed instead who was going to win the national, the grand national, for as Mr. Ferguson was saying at that minute in Luxor, it is not the past that matters, but the future. It is not the past that matters, but the future, says Ferguson, as right after talking about it, didn't seem fair that she had everything. And then the other guy says, well, it doesn't seem to have done her much good, poor lass. What do we make of the ending, Jill wants to know? Is that a critique of the kind of mindset that ends up destroying the main characters in the book, Lynette gets murdered because she's rich and powerful and kind of vapid. Um, the two murderers are just looking toward the future. No one is looking back in the way that Perot is and like holding on to these trusted bedrock values. Everyone is just kind of rushing into the future. Is that, is that Christie kind of saying, Better think about this because it doesn't go well for you, this like hot-headed pursuit of just whatever lies out two days in front of you. Yeah, I'm asking so. you guys. I'm asking. Yeah. Yeah, it's an it's oh, a it curious, rhetorical. Yeah. It's a curious last line because it doesn't seem to be a main theme of the story, the wrestling with the past and the future. Right. Um, that doesn't, it's not like, it's not like in the great Gatsby, for example, when it's the perfect ending because it's exactly the, like the entire story is built on this wrestling between, uh, the past and the future. Right. Um, mm. but Christie lived during a very tumultuous time in history in which things were changing and she was a traditional woman, uh, and, and there was a, you know, Ferguson was, there was a Ferguson on every corner in England at the time, right? Um, and she kind of pokes gentle fun at the, uh, a, a bit at the mindset of, you know, we're the young generation, we're going to save the world. But she's wise enough, I think, and you see this in her canon. I'm really not projecting because I am, I, I've read all of her books many times. I'm really, this is true. She's, she's wrestling throughout her books with this, with, with the disappearance of the past. Um, and this, what she sees as a callow, idealistic, unrealistic expectation of the young generation to be able to sweep away all that a society is built on and replace it with their own values, right? And so a lot of her murders are centered on that 
idea. And a lot of her suspects are wrestling with that. You have a lot of like old generation versus young generation, a new way of thinking, the young kind of idealistic Oxford movement or the communists or whatever. Um, and their attempts to save the world from 20th century tyranny uh, and, and war that's taking place. I mean, she wrote over the course of two world wars. Um, and, and so she's wrestling with the same kinds of things that like Tolkien and Lewis and, and the lost generation are all wrestling with. So the question of past and future uh, and how to reconcile those things, whether they can be, what ought to be destroyed, what ought to be kept safe, what ought to be replaced, what is good that we should preserve, what's wicked that we should jettison and how does, who makes that decision are kind of part of the undercurrents of all of her books. But this one is kind of peculiar because it doesn't, it's not a main focus of the book, but I think we, when we get to the end, we have Lynette, who was a young woman who was who was embodying all of the old English values, mm-hmm. and she was killed by murdered uh, by she was surrounded by people who didn't who who only saw her as that first of all. So she's completely dehumanized in the whole story by the surrounding characters, and it's only Poirot who treats her like a real person ever, right? And and then she gets murdered by somebody who just wants the money, who in English eyes is unworthy of it because he hasn't earned it in the sense, I'm using air quotes here, he hasn't mm-hmm. earned it in the sense that he wasn't highborn, he wasn't well-educated, and he wasn't well-bred, and he just wants to kill her and take her money. And so there's a lot of a convergence of political, moral, and societal values in that that's missing to us as modern readers that I think then is embedded within the story and makes that last line make a little bit more sense. Mm. Hmm. It occurs to me while you were talking that there's that line about Lynette, the famous, the beautiful, the wealthy, and fame, beauty, and presumably wealth eventually too are all things of the, that have become the past. Yes. You know, um, even the longer you live, the more they become part of the past, at least fame and beauty. Sure. Um, or, or, those, or they shift or whatever. Like, it seems like that's something that she's, at least she's creating like a syllogism of some kind there. Jesse wants to know if we like spy novels or detective novels better. Why? Uh, what does one have that the other might be lacking that we like the best? Tim, what do you like the best? Mm, I feel so unexperienced in both. I'm going to say spy novels, but I, but I feel so inexperienced. I, I'm, I, these are just not the genres that I read a lot. You two are, are you, the Heidi? ones, in, especially you, David. You have the authority here. Well, no, you I mean, Heidi's the gavel. Heidi's the, the, Heidi, I'm, would you say detective novels are your oh, favorite? Oh, yeah. For me, it's detective. Yeah. You okay. got me into spy <laughs> novels and I like them. I like them a lot. But I like detective novels better. But that's probably just because my brain's like used to it, not necessarily because I think they're objectively better. Mm-hmm. How about you? Yeah. Well, I mean, spy. Spy yeah. is my second yeah. favorite genre. So, what's your first favorite western? Um, oh yeah, yeah. Like a like a really good western. You know, and all the pretty horses, Blood Meridian, Lonesome Dove the way West, like a really good Western is just, but that's partly because of my grandmother getting me into them. And, you know, that, that goes back to being like a kid, the really great spy novels. Yeah. The really great spy novels are 
like there are some really truly literary great spy novels that where the spying is like incidental to the I mean it's not incidental like it, the book could have been about something else in terms of how it created the plot and still been incredible the, because it's about the characters and, and like this the psychology of the questions that it's asking you know um there there's some great spy novels that are barely even genre fiction in my opinion you know graham green wrote what we call spy novels but they're i mean they're some of the best novels of the 20th century um i think a couple of like ra's novels are just like so profound and the writing is so good and a lot of times the spy novels are allowed to go longer they're allowed to be like mm-hmm. which allows them to have some depth that the typical 250 page you know detective novel which is intended to get through quickly doesn't always have but that's right. not always true and I, I love detective novels and I, I love i mean i'm especially like into crime novels that have detectives um, more so than puzzle, not like to me, it's the mood and the tone and the adventure more than the puzzle. So that's just for me. Personally. I will say but, one thing that a detective story always has that a spy novel doesn't always have. If that's, since that's part of the question is a detective mm-hmm. story is a comedy always in the sense yes. that it always in has the, a resolution. Yeah. It always has a happy ending. Like, you know, like a true fairy tale always has a happy ending. Hans Christian Andersen doesn't write fairy tales. He writes cautionary tales, right? So that's the same with a detective story. Um, a mystery is a comedy. It always converges toward resolution and reveal. And and so it's uh, always, in my opinion, um, like Hey, in this case, there's even a the wedding. Mind. Yes, exactly. Like it's soothing to the mind. Um Whereas a spy novel can kind of, to your point, David, get into, uh, it can leave things unresolved. Um, it can have a sad ending. Um, and so it's a little bit more versatile. Well, as Think a, about the conceits. Yes. Like the point of a detective novel is to, deter, to, to identify, to solve something that is negative, that is a problem, find justice to reorder the right. world. The, exactly. A spy novel, like the very word spy novel is about like unraveling some kind of an order. It's like, usually it's about figuring out, like getting into an order and some, some sort of structure and blowing it up and trying to figure out what broken thing is happening underneath it. It's like a bleak concept to begin with. So that's one of the reasons why sometimes the best spy novels are so psychologically and morally, you know, rich right. minefields. They tend to wrestle, I think, with a little more moral nuance than detective stories, which is kind of funny because a detective story is violent by nature. But the violence is it's not incidental. It's just the problem of the story that needs to be solved. Um, and so when detective stories do try to like kind of like be like dark and brooding, I, f- I think they fail a little bit. Um, well, the detective novel is about the detective trying to do something good and the spy novel is about the spot the spy is doing something fundamentally questionable and the mm-hmm. question is is the, is the is there an ultimate good that allows the questionable thing that they're doing to be yeah, worth doing that's true that's not usually a question in a detective novel tim were you going to say something okay all right one final question here um tim you got time for it okay one question i want you to be here for this one because it's about casting so debbie took issue with our gal gadot conversation um she says um i saw the trailer for the movie and lynette says 
in the trailer. When you have money, Monsieur, some people are always out to get you, which seems to me to be the exact opposite of something book Lynette would say. Her naivety and selfishness put her in the position she's in, and there's no naivety in a line like that. Does book Lynette really say that or anything like it? I scanned the book but didn't find anything. I also think Gal Gadot is way too old and self-assured to be Lynette. Book Lynette runs through her life steamrolling over anything and every, anyone to get what she wants and not really even acknowledging that she's driving the steamroller. The minute she meets resistance in the form of Jackie, she's off balance. She's a nervous wreck. She's clutching things so tightly her knuckles are white. Poro notices that more than once. Uh, then she says... When Gal Gadot walks in a room, all eyes are on her and she basks in it. When Lynette walks in a room, she knows all eyes are on her and she doesn't care because she thinks it's her birthright. And there's a big difference there. I don't know who I would have cast, but it looks to me like the movie is going to be a very different adventure than the book. Terry then says, I agreed with this. And she said that when we were talking about that, she was yelling in the car about disagreeing with us about perfect casting. So um, I think this allows us to have kind of a cap around this conversation about Lynette and then also a segue into our future conversations about the movie, which we will do once the movie comes out on February 11th. Um, Heidi, I'll, you, I'll let you talk about that idea of, do we, do we think book Lynette? Well, Tim, okay, Tim, jump, jump on here. What, what do you think of this, this question here? And I, what may, what it makes me think is, Okay. Lynette, when this book was written, um, is not thinking people are always out to get you if you have money. And I think that's probably true. And I think that's true because of the world that she lives in. There's kind of an established upper class and an established lower class. And both accept in large part their position. I'm not saying that people in lower classes don't wish they had more money. Of course they do. They had more prestige. Of course they do. But I think in British society in the earlier part of the 20th century, it's much more acceptable. Um, the class system is much more acceptable. I think the movie is made for 21st century America. We pride ourselves in being a classless society. I mean, we are, but we pride ourselves in kind of like everybody – um, we go out have, of our way to be that way. Yeah, we do. We do. And so if somebody else has money, there's not that barrier of a class system that would keep me from saying, and I want that money. I want her money. Um, so I think that it's probably a 21st century movie made for a 21st century audience by a 21st century American. And sure, it appeal. It has to, it's like source material is... 20th century England, I think it has to make adjustments along the way because it's a hundred years later. And as much as we share a lot of things in common with England, it is a different country. Yeah. And, and the other part of it is there's just two ways you have to think about casting is there's the, especially in a movie this big, what's the experience that the audience already has with this person? So that's a big part of it. And so you have to, you're trying to generate a kind of response to a character. And so you cast for that. And then there's the other part that like characters, actors act, right? So while Gal Gadot is very self-assured, the trailer is not going to emphasize the different versions that Gal Gadot can do. They're going to emphasize the Gal Gadot that we're familiar with so that you go to the movie. Um, I think we'll probably get her doing some acting in this movie that, in moment, there will be moments when she doesn't seem too self-assured. But also the last line, 
the, of the question, it looks like the movie is going to be a very different adventure than the book. I don't know. I hope it is. <laughs> I'm of the mind that I don't like when books and when movies try to be true to books. I, I, I actually kind of am annoyed by it because the, ex, the experience is just so like you can't recreate you can't the book experience. Do it. And in part because everybody has a different experience with the book. Bethany and I just rewatched the two different Pride and Prejudices. She had just reread the book. And so we watched the BBC one. I didn't watch all of it. I watched a good portion of it. She watched all of it. And then I watched the Joe Wright, Kira Knightley, Matthew McFadden movie. And I am, I, I have decided that I am the, um, I am ready to watch the world burn because I, I think I, prefer the Joe Wright movie to the BBC one that everyone loves, which is great because it's not trying to be the book. It's trying to capture certain essences of the book. So it, the question that that's one of those things that I'm the wrong person to, to defend, or I'm going to naturally defend creating new, something new out of a movie. Uh, the, different than what the book was, but Heidi, as someone who's like, these books are near and dear how do you approach something like that? Where like you love Agatha Christie. And so if Kenneth Branagh and his team makes, take some liberties and create something new, is that, does that, does that just make your heart hurt? Or are you like Tim and I, you're like, um, you're good with us with changes being made. So I have, I, I just think I have such a different perspective. I do think that film I really like what you and Tim have said, and you have educated me on this, both of you, that film is a different medium than a book. However, I love books and I don't really love movies that much. And so to me, being true to a book is a criteria by which I judge a movie because I like the book and that's why I'm watching the movie. Mm -hmm. um, I think that in this case, I thought that the con I thought the comment brought up some really good points, especially about um, Lynette's selfishness and her naivete, uh, and how much that contributed to her downfall. Um, however, I think that I still think the casting choice is great because um, exactly what you said that we as an audience are going to have a response to the actress who is acting this part. And so in that sense, we're actually going to be able to go deeper into the book because we're going to be able to see somebody that we as moderns hold up as an object of envy um, and admiration. And, and, and so that kind of moves the book from that generation to this one. Um, I do think that a book, that a movie ought to do everything it can to preserve the soul of the story. Um, and what I'm, I know that that's an abstract word, but I don't know any other word to use, like the tone of it, the tone of the story. Um, mm -hmm. I, and, and so like the feel of the story, the reaction of the story, like how we are, how Agatha Christie intended her audience to react to this story. We're going to react more to Gal Gadot than we are to Lynette Doyle. Right. And so she's a great casting choice because it puts us in the position of being able, being able to get deeper into the heart of the story instead of being kind of locked outside of it because we don't share the same cultural values. Mm -hmm. I, 
I, what I object to and why I do disagree with you about the pride and prejudice thing is that, and although I know what you're saying and I don't, I, I, when I say disagree, like when I meet you on your this is terms, a different conversation. I get it, right? Like when I meet you on your terms, I get it. But when I use my own criteria for judging a movie, I think they totally missed the mark because they used an old story to tell a new story. And it's a di- then it's a different story, yeah, right? So we gotta, story. We'll have to, we have like, to, we'll have, to have a conversation yeah. about that because I disagree with that with that movie. And I actually think, I don't I actually really didn't like watching the BBC one because I mm-hmm. felt like they were, they were, I, I, we can, we, we don't have time to talk about this. I, right. I think they get Lizzie Bennett so wrong in that. Like, I think the performances are good, but I don't think they get her right in that, in the BBC. I one. agree with Whereas you I think on that. I agree Kira with Knightley, you on that. I think I've is never more. Seen, I agree. And I've actually never seen a performance of, I've never seen the movie made of Pride and Prejudice that satisfied me. That I've because I felt yeah, like they fair. either tried to be too modern or they tried to be too sedate. Mm-hmm. And that the whole book yeah. is about this unconventional person who's living a con who's choosing to live a conventional life. And that's so anyway. Well, of course, you, the other thing about it is we're, you almost have to judge them differently. In this case, this is a very side conversation because BBC is allowing themselves to have like six to eight hours and Joe Wright's trying to make an hour and 55 minute, two hour movie. Mm-hmm. And so you just can't put out, you have to, you're making choices about what it's like about what you're going to take out that. And then those choices that you take out are going to have both implicit like, and explicit <laughs> you know, impacts on how you, how we experience it. And I think that's going to be interesting to watch with this movie. Like what do they choose to leave and what do they choose to take out? Um, how do that, how is that going to impact our experience with it? And that's, you know, and then we're all going to have our own unique experiences because we all read these characters differently. Um, so it's a, it's a, in some ways it's kind of a fool's errand to adapt any book that's beloved into a movie right. because this, the vast, because so many people are going to, have a criticism about it. Right. Well, and if you're making the story, I think if you're making a movie, you ought to love the book, which is why I care. Like, I think Peter Jackson did a pretty good job with the Lord of the Rings movies because he loves the books. And he made choices. He made fair interpretive choices. Like everybody hates the Faramir because everybody sees Faramir the way they want to see him. Right. But I think that, and, and I think that's the one he did the least good job with, but at the same time, he made an interpretive choice that's valid within the world of the story that we just happen to say I disagree with. I like this other option, but he mm-hmm. loves the book. He captured the soul of the books. What I don't like is when people take old stories and try to modernize them and turn them into modern morality tales uh, to kind of say like, well, uh, let me save Shakespeare from himself and I'll tell this story instead. Right. right, right and right, that yeah. bothers me. And I don't know that I'm seeing that yet with the potential for death on the Nile. Like the, what I'm watching is like, oh, that's an interesting choice. You don't, and by that, you don't mean, you don't like the story could take place in modern times and still capture the soul of the book. Like you could, Shakespeare adapted for 2022 doesn't, of course. that's not what you're talking about. Yeah. No, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just, but when just they're like, we're gonna, yes. But when they take an old story and try to tell it, by new, by through new eyes. And this, yeah. I, I look at death on the Nile. I look at the previews and I'm like, oh, that looks interesting, but there's nothing that makes me think that looks terrible. I would never want to see that movie. It looks like they ruined it. So yeah. 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 Well, Tim had to go. He left yeah. us. So should we talk, should we, you know, say some things about him? 
What are you gonna get? Make fun of him. You gonna get him for his wedding? Do you know yet? Maybe a microwave. Let's get him a microwave. Uh, well, it sounds like I'm going to be hosting his wedding in my bookstore. So I think feel like that's good. Enough. I heard that's what I heard. Like sign on yep. the dotted line. Ready? to go. I know. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure that that's what happened is I have paperwork now. I want to like do when you say food. it on a podcast, it's paperwork, right? Let's do the food and wine. Perfect. Okay. All right. All right. Well, we should go. Um, thanks to everyone who sent in questions. We'll be doing as I lay dying next. We'll start that next week. Uh, the schedule for that. Uh, by the time you listen to this episode, uh, the schedule will probably have gone out via email, but if not, check closereads.substack.com or check the Facebook page for the for the official as a lay dying schedule. I'll send out another email that has um, old book covers and things like that for you to for you to compare. Um, I guess that's it. Well, congratulations to Tim for Tim McIntosh for Heidi White. I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for sending in questions and for supporting the show. Till next time, happy reading. Mm-hmm.